Hi everyone, I'm Alex. Welcome to the Hello My Tribe podcast. I started Hello My Tribe two years ago because I was desperate for community support and understanding as a new mom. Now with all of you, motherhood just keeps getting better and better. Weekly, I'll be sitting down with real everyday moms who have a story to share, as well as innovative leaders and experts. Nothing is off limits on our podcast. We dig deep and we get personal. Through these conversations, we hope to bring our two big beliefs to life. First, that guilt-free self-care is a necessity. And second, that motherhood is a team sport. And we hope that our time with you inspires and energizes a healthy and happy life for you and your family. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Marty Bledsoe-Post. After a 20-year marketing career leading agency teams in digital marketing, consumer insights, and social media, Marty founded Apparently. Marty has a vision for helping rising women leaders bring their best and highest selves to both the worlds of work and family. Marty is the author of Retrofit, a playbook for modern moms. Marty, I am so glad we are connecting today. When I recently heard you give the keynote at Mother Honestly Summit back in October, I knew I wanted to chat more. So let's start with what drew me in when you were up on that stage chatting to, I think it was like 350 women in Detroit. Um, It was the history of motherhood. So in your book, which I am obsessed with and it's sitting in my lap, um, you break the history of motherhood down into four time frames, pre-Victorian, Victorian, post-World War II, and today. So can you explain to us how motherhood has changed over the years? Yes, absolutely. This is one of the things that most fascinated me when I was working on the book is this notion that family life has changed dramatically over these last, you know, call it six, eight generations. In the pre-Victorian era, families were really large and uh, women did not have any control over the timing and spacing of their pregnancies or the amount of pregnancies they had. And so they had many, many children and not all children were guaranteed to survive birth or survive to their first or even fifth birthday. So mothers were in a different space than we find ourselves today. They were part of a large caregiving network of their own extended families and also the siblings of each child as they came along and the families got bigger. So mothers were not uh, the single caregiver in those pre-Victorian times. And motherhood was not something that you really aspired to, uh, to achieve in your life. It was just a simple fact of nature. And as society moved more into the Victorian era, especially European society, we saw a tendency to idealize the mother and make her her qualities of femininity and grace and nurturance, these things that women should aspire to be in order to be ideal mothers or true mothers. And we see a lot in the artwork and the writing of the time describing the ideal mother as someone who was selfless and caring and patient and endlessly available. But remember, even in that time, they were not sole caregivers. They either were in the upper class, so they had hired help, or they were part of that hired helping class and were surrounded by other people who could help really bring children into the world and bring them up still in that village mindset. And it wasn't until the world transformed after World War II in the United States and Britain specifically that we started to see an ideal of the mother alone staying home with a child up until that child reaches school age. And that had to do with a lot of factors, everything from economic factors, including how 
GIs were settled into the new suburban developments when they got back from the war to the fact that many women who had gone into the workforce during the war then went back, quote unquote, home when the GIs returned to their jobs. And you see that suddenly uh, this middle class is born. And what that means is that there's no help uh, coming in from the helping class anymore. And there's no one to help uh, those people either. The middle class becomes this notion of the sort of self-sufficient nuclear family, all of them making it on their own, all of them next to each other, next to their neighbors. And the mother is painted and portrayed in communications and, and even propaganda campaigns by the U.S. and British governments that the mother is the ideal person to be home with the babies until they reach school age. And that puts an incredible strain on one person to think that she's now responsible for the physical, psychological, emotional, educational well-being of a young child on her own, absent of the village around her. And that has multiplied now. We find ourselves, you know, we're heading into 2020. We're about to start a fresh new decade. Have we really evolved a lot? Well, that's an interesting question because we still think of that mother at home with babies till school as the default mm -hmm. ideal. So any mother who works, any mother who, you know, goes to the Olympics or trains for, you know, other sporting events or serves in the in the United States Armed Forces, they are seen as doing something other than their main job, which is to be home with the with the children until they go to school. And so by default, we've set up a narrative where that's the that's the expectation. If you're not home, then you're a working mom, you're deviating from that quote unquote norm. But this is coinciding with the exact same 30-year period in which women have finally gotten a foothold in the workplace or started to and are starting to rise up in our positions of leadership and our positions of power, still not as fast as we would like. And I think that has to do with the fact that we've never reconciled this motherhood ideal on the other side of that equation. You were sharing all of this up on stage and I was just like captivated by all of it because it's like it's no wonder women and mothers feel the way we do today. Mm -hmm. I want to read – you just described these four um, time frames, but I want to actually read what you wrote in your book about what motherhood is today. Um, you call it the, – the title for today is called Intensive Parenting. And that's how it feels, right? So yes. you share that the New York Times has described modern parenting as relentless. And as women begin their careers before their families, they are less and less prepared to meet the demands of motherhood. Our philosophy now is that each child is precious, and the data shows that we spend more time, more money, more resources than ever before to get them to adulthood. Many modern couples aspire to be equal partners at home and pay lip service to rejecting the ideal of the 1950s mother. And yet, data shows mothers still shoulder the majority of childcare and home-related duties. It's just like, it's mind-blowing. Yes. That it makes you want to say a bad word, doesn't it? <laughs> Let's say it, Marty. This is, you can totally cuss on this podcast, but yes, it makes you want to like explode. It's, yeah. to me, it's like we are thankfully getting what we are fighting for and have wanted, but something also has to give and change because we can't, um, you know, take on these roles in the workplace while also expecting to, you know, raise the children perfectly and take care of the home and have home-cooked meals. And we can't do it all. Right. And if we try, 
the price of that attempt is our own sort of inner spark. You can, you can mm-hmm. call it, there's, you know, there's lots of ways we talk about it. We talk about it as you need more self-care, you need more me time, you need, uh, you need balance. We talk about it in, in a lot of different ways, but this, the essence of it to me is that the woman is, is the fulcrum in the middle of this balance conversation. So you can talk about work-life balance or family work balance, or however, you know, you can even have multiple things you're trying to balance. But the woman herself is the fulcrum of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're staring at the edges of the counterweights and saying, is this heavier or is this heavier or is it balanced? You're not looking at the center, which is the person herself caught in the middle, trying to hold up all the sides all the time. Mm-hmm. And to me, at least what, what happened in my own experience was after many years of that, the spark simply went out. I mean, it cost me my creativity. It started to cost me my health. Um, it ultimately cost me my marriage. It, it (sighs) became impossible to, to remain sort of a connected, thriving human in the midst of that. Yeah. You share so many fantastic statistics in your book. So I want to share a couple. So you share that the number of hours worked each week by the average working mom when you include childcare and housework, is 98 hours. And you also share that um, childcare responsibilities shouldered by working mothers versus working fathers, 65% by mothers and 35% by fathers. And something that I read in your book is that the gender gap begins at home. Yeah. And when you look at those numbers, it just, like, for me, a lot of like anger comes up. Absolutely. Uh, for me too, a lot of anger came up when I was really digging into that because some of it, I feel we should have changed by now. When right. I read the statistics about the 65%, 35%, I thought we've, we've missed somehow the notion of equality. We've looked instead, and this is part of Darcy Lockman's excellent book, All the Rage, we've looked instead to say fathers are doing more than ever. And we've sort of checked the box, like they're Mm. involved, they're in it with us. Mm -hmm. And we've not said, how deep are they in it with us? And that 3565 statistic has held true for quite a few years. So it's not even like it's edging out, you know, toward a more equal split. Mm hmm. In terms of the gender gap beginning at home, I have a daughter and a son. And when I read that story about, you know, we, we ask our girls to do more and different chores than we ask our boys to do. And when we pay children for chores, there's data that shows from a, um, a family chore assignment app that girls make less money for their chore efforts than boys, according to what all the families who use the app have been paying. And I thought, well, that's certainly that wouldn't be true in my home. I mean, I study these things and I have a background in, you know, women's studies and and I have one of each child and I'm going to just pay attention to how we're doing it and see that we're much more equal and damned if we're not part of it as well. (laughs) Um, Because I found myself very, very sort of stereotypically having my daughter load the dishwasher and my son take out the trash. And Mm -hmm. I found myself, you know, um, when they, when they, they do sometimes ask me if they can be paid for chores and I have to really think about, well, no. And if you are, you're going to be paid equally Mm -hmm. because the unspoken message, if we don't get that right, is that her time is worth less than his time or her time is somehow expected to be more caught up in caring for the unpaid space 
around everybody that everybody gets to enjoy and his is not focused on that. And so it's a tricky thing. And it's part of why we all, I think in a post-feminist generation, we all thought this stuff was solved. We all thought, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're equal. I'm going to marry someone who sees me as an equal partner and isn't going to ask me to stand in the kitchen in my high heels and bake a cake every Mm -hmm. night. And yet we are still perpetuating some of these very subtle gendered ideals at home. This is the first I'm hearing about um, <laughs> the gender gap starting at home in terms of our children and chores. Mm-hmm. I'm It's like shocking to me that parents, um, you know, I don't even know if this is a conscious effort or not, but are they're not paying their children equally for chores. Isn't that mind blowing? It's really I'm like a little speechless right now. Wow. Um, thank you for bringing that to light for me. <laughs> so, um, you also share, I just keep quoting your book because I'm like, it's like the perfect size to carry around. I brought it yesterday to my well check at the gyno and I'm reading it in the, like the lobby. <laughs> it was like really appropriate. Um, but you share in a global study that UNICEF ranks the U.S. 41st out of 41 developed countries in terms of family-friendly policies. I'm laughing because this is, like, absolutely absurd. I know, because it's better than crying, right? Right. It makes me, like, so uncomfortable that I'm laughing. So this is, like, it literally makes me speechless. It's so hard to believe that in the U.S., the United States of America— we are ranked dead last mm-hmm. in terms of family-friendly policies. So what is going on here? Well, there's a lot to that statistic because it's what it's measuring is how we support people in terms of policy around um, parental leave and child care for parents who work. So those are the two, there's many other factors, but those are the two main things that, that we still do not even have a beginning of a policy around that other countries have already figured out in terms of if you want people to have families and raise healthy families, they of course are going to need time off work for the leave time around bringing those babies home. And then they also are going to need coverage when their children are away from them when they go back to work. Mm-hmm. Also on a very macro level, we have a, an individualistic manifest in our country where each person, each worker is essentially seen to be achieving on his or her own and therefore solving his or her um, childcare questions and potential questions around leave and family planning, like on his or her own. It's not, it's not a societal solution. Mm. Whereas other countries have taken more of a, an approach of, listen, this is a, this is a, a requirement for the common good, and we're going to solve it on a macro level. So for example, Caitlin Collins published a book in early 2019 called Making Motherhood Work. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. She spent one summer interviewing working mothers in each of four countries. And in the um, the summer she spent in Sweden, she was interviewing these women about what it's like to be a working mother. And she had a translator in the interview, and the translator got stuck on the question. And so they they kind of tried again and the the woman didn't understand and they tried again. And finally the translator looked at Caitlin and said, in Sweden, we do not say working mother. This, this phrase has no translation here. Mm. I'm, I'm giving it to her as you're saying it, but she's not understanding it because we don't talk about ourselves that way because in Sweden, everybody works and many people have families and it's not even, it's not even part of how we designate ourselves. Um, so I think it's, it's like, 
it's such a subtle thing. It's around us in so many ways that we can't even always peel back the layers to understand what's going on. But frankly, if you had federally protected leave for six months after your baby was born, and then you could enroll your baby in a federally subsidized program while you went back to work until they got to preschool, you would be in a whole different space than you are right now, which is wondering if you're going to get leave, wondering if you're going to get paid and wondering what's going to happen to the baby when you go back to work. Right. And wondering if you do end up staying home, you know, what happens when you do go back to work? Do you get, you know, struck with the motherhood penalty and get paid less and start, you know, in a lower role? I mean, we are um, facing a lot of hardships when we become mothers in terms of working and career. Yes. Yes. So interesting. Um, And so what do you – how do we change this 41st – out of 41 ranking? Well, it's interesting to me that in 2019, the Edelman Trust survey came out. So Edelman PR does a survey every single year of Americans and asks them about the institutions they trust. And in 2019, the number one trusted institution became the employer. What we see in that same study is we see the government and the media slipping down toward the bottom of the most trusted institutions, which we can probably all observe for ourselves out there in the world. We understand that that's going on. But what's interesting to me is the way the employer has risen up now to be the number one trusted institution. So Hmm. waiting for it to get solved at a policy level is something that, um, you know, we can all advocate for. We can we can vote for family friendly candidates. We can support initiatives like Paid Leave U.S., who is out there advocating for both paid maternity and paid paternity leave on Capitol Hill. And that's a very important initiative. And that's part of how we will improve the number 41 ranking. The other piece, however, is to work through these employers who have become our most trusted institution for American workers and encourage employers to see parental support as a recruiting and retention strategy that will make them stronger as employers. It will give them a stronger workforce. It will give them a better future pipeline for leadership. And that doesn't just mean give more leave. I mean, this is something that I learned sitting in the audience at Mother Honestly in Detroit was there's a notion of this customizable parental benefit that could be, you know, maybe maybe Alex, you do need six months off and maybe I only want, you know, eight weeks, but then I want access to nursing or I want, uh, you know, a, I mean, access to a night nurse, or I want access to a concierge service to help me with family tasks and errands for the next six weeks while I get mm. back up to speed. Or maybe I want to work part-time and, and come back gradually. You know, we can all be different in terms of how we want to manage it, but the company can, it sits in a very prime position to help make it easier for workers, easier to go out, easier to come back, easier to manage family life past even the newborn stage, right? Because mm-hmm. as your kids get older, you realize, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's only going to get busier. Um, so there are lots of ways that the employer can step in. And I think it would dovetail. I think if enough employers really stepped forward and said, as part of our diversity and inclusion imperative, we are going to really focus on how we support working parents. I think that would dovetail then back into the lobbying and policy efforts that are already underway. Because as we all know, um, you know, the, the corporate pressure is what will move things forward in Washington. So to me, the heart of it sits with our employers. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a side question for you. Yeah based on what you just shared about mothers in Sweden not understand this concept of working mom. Um, 
if you could like redefine here in the U.S. the actual term like working mom and stay-at-home mom, which I think are we I mean we hear this from women that these are like these are trigger words or someone mm-hmm. saying like full-time mom because they stay home with their child. I mean, how do you have you thought about this in terms of like how can we describe these different types of motherhood in the U.S. that don't trigger things for women today? It's such an interesting question because this is also unique to our culture. In most other cultures, people don't walk up to each other at a cocktail party and say, you know, hi, I'm Marty. What do you do? Right. Uh, It's a very American (laughs) um, way of defining people by what they do for their career. And it's that automatic assumption that the person you're asking, you know, has an out of home job. And so I think that instantly sets up the whole, if, if my answer is right now, I'm staying home, raising my children. Um, then I think that that becomes an instant sort of, you feel back on your heels a little bit like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I, you know, I don't have an answer that fits what everybody else must be answering right now. Um, I've been there in those shoes before in terms of like that being my answer, mm -hmm. staying home with my kids and not feeling like confident in that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a better phrase, to be honest with you. It is such an important question, and it's something that we all need to probably rally around. I mean, I think that one of the things that that I often found helpful when I was feeling really overwhelmed was people would say, how are you? Mm-hmm. And this is a bit of a tangent, but I instead of saying I'm so busy or I'm so stressed, I would say I'm I'm doing really well. I have my hands full managing my blessings. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that because my blessings included my job at the time and, and, and still do. And I think that that's, was my way of saying, you know, my hands are full on both sides and I'm trying to acknowledge it in a positive way. I don't know how you get around the direct question of, you know, do you have children? Are you home with those children or are you employed at the moment? Mm -hmm. It's so easy for those of us who have a paid role to just launch into that. And then the, the parenting part never comes up Mm -hmm. in those settings. Um, so I guess it's, it's something that it's a dialogue that needs to be open. And as you pointed out, we have to open it gingerly because we've put a real divide between women right. in the conversation. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. So for me, I went from having a thriving career where I felt like incredibly valued and respected and plugged into the community to being this, you know, this term being a stay-at-home mom. Um, mm-hmm. And I really struggled with that identity shift. And I remember, I think I was about 12 months postpartum and I was at an event and someone said, what are you up to now? And, you know, I said, I'm staying home with my child. But at this time, I was actually doing consulting work and starting to build this business. But that's where I started with saying I'm staying home with my child. I'm a mother now. And um, the woman, you know, acknowledged that and said, wow, that's so wonderful. And then the conversation just stopped there. Mm. And I, you know, I felt really uncomfortable and really unhappy in that moment because I wanted to talk more about what I was doing and what I was up to because that's where I really felt valued. Um, and I, I remember that moment being like a tough moment for me and very like confused on like what I really wanted and wanted to share with people and wanted to talk about. Um, and there really is that divide between the two worlds. Absolutely. And I think our generation is, is hopefully the last one to feel it quite so acutely in the sense that 
more and more millennials and members of Generation Z, as they begin and sort of move up in their careers, are redefining a bit of how we think about work, which I think is all positive Mm -hmm. in the sense that they will work much, they have a longer life expectancy than we do, and they will work more years of their life than we are expected to work. So in general, they have a longer and more, I'll call it meandering career path ahead of them than what we as Gen X and our parents, the boomers kind of went on this straight shot up the ladder path. Like it was a vertical path and that was it. And deviation from the path was always met with that quizzical look like, well, what do you mean you're home? Or what do you mean you're taking a step out? Whereas millennials and Gen Z are much more likely to craft different chapters in their career journey where they might be part-time here. They might be on a sort of flex assignment there. They might be doing part of a year where it's part volunteer work and part travel, and then they come back and work full-time for two years, and then they do that volunteer and travel type chapter again. Mm -hmm. And the gig economy, this notion that any of us can trade our skill and our expertise for for money and for that fulfillment is only going to keep going. You see the rise of membership-based co-working spaces. I'm sitting in one right now in the middle of Columbus, Ohio. I talked to two CEOs of mid-sized firms in Columbus in the past two weeks who told me they are downsizing their offices because more and more people are working in flexible arrangements and not coming into the office. What I see all of that doing for someone who stays home and raises children is there will still be ways to work in consulting work, to work in you know um, some sort of service-based uh, offering. I mean, staying home with a baby is more than a full-time job. I can, mm-hmm. I, I mean, anyone who's been home with an infant can tell you like that is, that is some heavy work there. But the notion of what work can mean is starting to change. And I think the next generation of working moms will be able hopefully to customize that definition much better for themselves. And that might look like a year solely at home. And then it might look like a year with some home and some consulting, and then it might look like back to full-time and then it might switch again. And, and I think, I think that is an amazing opportunity and we should all be looking at how do you break your career into these chapters and look at success in that particular chapter instead of just look at the forward total trajectory. Right. So you share a Bureau of Labor statistic that 78% of mothers today with children under the age of 18 are in the workforce, which means most mothers are working um, outside of the home compared to 48% of mothers in 1975. So this is, like we're talking about, is a complicated subject for me. So on one hand, um, it's what we've fought for and what we've wanted, opportunity and equality in the workforce. And on the other hand, like we are talking about, this increase is also, you know, due to the fact that many women don't have any other options. Like they have to go back to work. 25% of women go back to work two weeks after giving birth, which is just insane. Um, so either way, um, a huge increase in terms of mothers in the workforce, but the workforce is still set up for you know, a man in many ways and for someone to be that stay-at-home parent. Right. So what can we be doing on like an individual level to be changing this so that, I mean, I don't want to say there there's no going backwards, but it's like women are going to continue entering the workforce. How do we set up ourselves in, a, in, in the workforce to be successful? 
I heard a really interesting thing last week about starting to switch our mindset from time management to task management. And I thought Mm. that was really interesting because we went through a sort of a craze, if you will, in the 90s and 2000s where everybody talked about, you know, how are you managing your time and how are you blocking your calendar and how are you being efficient with um, your downtime and and your drive time and, and all of that. And instead, what I think this notion of task management or task completion is so much more compelling because if you work, you know, better in the morning or you work better at midnight or you work really fast or I work really slow, all of those things should be up for discussion as long as we're focusing on production and the end deliverable or the end, uh, you know, providing the end service that, that needs to be provided. So this notion of shift work, teaching us about how to think about the service professions and then production models, teaching us how to think about products that have to be delivered instead of, is everybody in their chair at nine o'clock and is everybody still in their chair at five 30? Mm-hmm. That's where the change has to start. Mm-hmm. It gets really tricky to translate that into a team, but the But the only way anything has ever changed in these kinds of scenarios is for a few people to be brave and try it out. So I think from an individual perspective, the mandate is to take a really hard look at your own, you know, your own role, your own department, your own company, Mm -hmm. and start to think about if we reframed this, and this isn't just to benefit working mothers, this is to benefit employees who are whole people, which is hopefully all of our employees, Mm -hmm. um, if we reframe what we're focusing on here, can we free up our people away from the clock and more toward their contribution? And then can we start to pattern that? And can we start to show in the data that this creates more engaged employees? The data from Gartner says that only about a third of our employees are engaged in their jobs. And that has held steady for more than 15 years, which is staggering when you think about it. That means that means two thirds of people are either checked out or wishing they were somewhere else or, you know, um, actively looking for a different role. And so what we need to do is find a way to re-engage everybody. And to Mm -hmm. me, that starts with a conversation about how can we take ourselves away from being slaves to the clock? That is such a low number. And it's, to be honest, it's really sad. Yes. Like we spend so much time in our jobs and the fact that a third are engaged you know, like that's a big portion of our lives. It is. And it's our time away from our kids. It's right. it's the very emotional scene in Erin Brockovich when somebody says you're taking this too personally. And mm-hmm. she says it is personal. It's right. my, my time away from my kids. Yeah. So when you were researching for your book, Retrofit, the playbook for modern moms, what surprised you most? I mean, I'm kind of surprised by everything. <laughs> but what surprised you most? Um, that is a great question. I would say the biggest surprise to me was around, it, it's really twofold. It, it was around the partnership piece at home, mm-hmm. the idea that mothers and fathers who have stood at altars and lovingly promised each other, we will be different. It will be better. It will be fine. And intended it with all their hearts for that to be true. Then mm-hmm. go home and bring a baby home. And all of a sudden they find mm-hmm. themselves in this, this outdated paradigm. Um, but the other thing that really hit home with me was the idea that it is harder than ever to be a parent because our children are suffering from, and you can list, I mean, you can list lots and lots of factors, but the data shows that 
children are now suffering from higher rates of anxiety and depression. We have children who have access to social media younger and younger. We have children who we're starting to learn more about how the brain is wired and how many kids learn differently than what mainstream education provides. And so the, the era of benign neglect being a positive parenting style is over which is part of what makes this relentless feeling that that the New York Times identified come to life is this feeling that my kid really needs me to be actively in their life and advocating for them beyond the parameters of did I feed them dinner and check their homework and put them to bed on time, mm, which right. is all I have time to do if I'm working that ridiculous nine to five, you know, schedule. So it was that to me, that feeling came onto my shoulders as a heavy, heavy notion that our kids need more from us than ever. Mm-hmm. And we're not prepared to give it if we're so caught up in the amount of time and energy and effort and, you know, um, investment that we're expected to make at work just to keep our role, let alone advance in our role. And that really sits hard on my shoulders because, I don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't see our kids getting any less needy as the world around us gets more complex. I mean, my goodness, if anything, they need, they'll need us more and more. Right. Right. So lastly, what do you wish women and mothers had more of? Mm. I'll tell you, I, I just wish we were louder with our stories and Mm. our truth and our protest of, what the hell is going on here? You've got a whole segment of the population across two and a half generations who are going down in flames and who is watching? Nobody. And I want us to get really loud and really strong about why it's not working and what we need. And I think we're starting to see it. I mean, I I feel that the conversation is beginning to coalesce. I think you are seeing new energy around it from things like you know, motherly and mother, honestly, and the summit we all got to attend, but also the fact that some of the candidates in the 2020 presidential election are looking at family policy and putting it as part of their platforms. So the, the it's starting to simmer, but I want it to boil. I want it to boil over. I want there to be such a rally cry around helping our moms get what they need that it cannot be ignored any longer. Love that. There's something so powerful about a woman using her voice and sharing her story that is such an agent of change. Mm-hmm. And you yes. are doing it, Marty. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me, for coming on today, for the work that you're doing. Um to lift women up. So thank you so much and keep going. Thank you. And thank you for highlighting the book. Um, people can get a hold of the book at martypost.com slash book. And I hope that people will look into it. it. It would be an excellent thing to give as a team gift because people could work on it together. And really it, it's designed to help evoke the story that you need to tell. Even if you don't feel like you know what it is, it's designed to get it to start to pull it out of you and help you know what you need to say. Awesome. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We are so incredibly thankful to have you as part of our community and want to continue serving you in the best ways. If you have any thoughts, feedback, and ideas, please connect with us at hello at hellomytribe.com. And of course, you can find us at hellomytribe.com and on Instagram at hellomytribe.com.